Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. Now, I don't know if you remember, but back in episode 77, when we were talking about SPVs, I promised to do a future podcast about property and tax. And this is it. Now, I know that tax isn't the most exciting subject in the world, but it's something which hopefully we're all going to have to think about because hopefully we're all going to be paying loads of tax. Now, I'm not saying that from the point of view that I'm just sort of capitulating and rolling over and giving in to the government. There's obviously an argument that we should be mitigating the amount of tax that we pay as long as we do it legally and maybe even morally and ethically. I don't know how you feel about that. We could have a good debate about that, but certainly legally. And there's a big difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. And I'm not suggesting anything illegal. We all need to pay the amount of tax that we need to pay. But the reality is that we don't need to pay any more than we should pay. And there's legal principles to enshrine that. We don't have to pay any more than we're due to pay. So in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about tax. But I have to say from the very beginning, and I'm sure you know this, but I'm not an accountant and I'm not an IFA. And I'm talking from a position of almost complete ignorance as a lay person. But what I do have is I've got 35 years experience in property and in my time I've paid a fair amount of tax. And so I've seen things and I've tried things and I've spoken to my accountant and hopefully we can distill that and make it into a podcast which is going to be useful to everybody. Now, if you come on the masterclass, the four day property training event, which Progressive run, you'll know that I actually don't take the tax section. The tax section is taken by my lovely co-host, Anne Halton. The reason why she does it, and the reason why Dixie and myself don't do it, of course, is because she pays much more tax than the both of us. Not because she's not so good at organising her tax affairs, but just because she's probably a better property investor, and so she makes more money. So that's fair enough. But from my position of complete ignorance... I'm going to try and do my best to talk you through this from what I've seen and what I've tried and what I've heard and what I've learned over the years in this podcast. So if that all makes sense, let's crack on. Now, as a a very first foundational statement, let me say something which is probably a little bit provocative, but I think it's probably true that a lot of investors start investing in property without actually thinking about their tax affairs when they start. Now, things have changed slightly over the last few years because of Section 24, which we'll think about in a moment. But generally speaking, in my experience from speaking to investors, they tend to concentrate on finding the property or their first property before they think about things like structuring their affairs for tax. And it's only when they're a little way down the road and they've got some momentum as property investors that they tend to wake up to the idea that it might be a good idea to sort my tax affairs out. So if you're listening to this and you are an absolute newbie and you haven't done anything yet, now is the time to be thinking about how you structure your tax affairs before you even go and find your first property. Why do I say that? Because 
if you don't get it structured properly from the start, I'm not saying you can never get it all right again. Of course you can, but it's going to take time. It's going to take professional advice, which you're going to have to pay for. There's going to be fees. There's going to be costs involved. There may even be some taxation to pay in order to mitigate your tax later. Sounds a bit strange, but it could happen, couldn't it? So, for example, if you were transferring properties from your name into the name of a limited company, for example, depending upon how you do it, it may be that you end up paying capital gains tax or stamp duty, even if that turns out to be the best way to mitigate your tax ongoing. So there may be tax to pay. So all of this stuff is worth thinking about now before we start. But I'm always surprised at how little thought so many investors actually give to this when they start out. I guess that's natural. We're all thinking about doing our first deal. We just want to get out there and spend our money and buy something and have the thrill of doing the deal. And I understand that. And tax isn't very interesting. But it is one of the first things you need to be thinking about, if not the first thing, when you sit down with your accountant, stroke solicitor, your IFA, whoever, your financial advisors, and probably all of them get advice from all of them, different aspects of property and taxation will be relevant to all of them, and think about how you're actually going to structure your affairs. Having said all of that, though, it's probably true that over the last few years, investors have become much more aware of tax as an issue from the very beginning because of the dreaded Section 24. Now, I know that we all know what Section 24 is, but just in case there's somebody listening who doesn't know what Section 24 is, let me give you a very, very quick recap. Back in 2015, I think it was June or July 2015, after the 2015 general election and the Conservatives unexpectedly won a majority and George Osborne was the Chancellor again, having been the Chancellor under the coalition government. George decided, for whatever reason, and we can have a long chat about this and speculate as to why he did this, but he decided that he was going to withdraw the right of property investors stroke landlords to offset mortgage interest against rent when calculating income tax. Now, the consequence of that, and this is going to be phased over a four-year period, and if memory serves me right, it means that as from the end of the tax year 2020, I think it is, we won't be able to offset any of our mortgage interest against rent when calculating income tax, although there will be a 20% tax credit, all very complicated, talk to your accountant about it. And by the way, for those of us who are thinking this doesn't really affect me because I'm a lower rate taxpayer, and this only affects higher rate taxpayers, people who are paying 40% or more, that's not necessarily true, by the way, because the consequence of this, because property is effectively going to be taxed on turnover and not profit, it could push your overall global income into the higher tax bracket. So just because you're not in the higher tax bracket now doesn't mean that you won't be by the end of this process when they withdraw this. So don't think it doesn't affect you. It might. And that's why you need. we all need to be talking to our accountants, IFAs, whoever, professional advisors about this. But the consequence of this is that many investors are now thinking that the right way forward is to buy properties into a limited company. And we're going to be thinking about that in more detail in this podcast. Now, the reason why that is the received view as to how we should be going forward is because these regulation changes, these law changes, these changes to the taxation system do not, at the time of recording this podcast, apply to limited companies. 
So it means that when you're calculating corporation tax, which is what a limited company pays, you can still offset mortgage interest against rents. By the way, I'm saying mortgage interest, but it's actually interest on any business loan. So it's not even just mortgages. So we need to be very, very careful about this. So a few years ago, the received wisdom was that probably for most of us, and I'm saying most of us deliberately because it all depends, you need to talk to your advisors, you need to talk to your accountant particularly, because probably for 95% of us, buying into a limited company is going to be the right way forward, but it's not necessarily going to be right for everybody. Now, having said all of that, of course, it all depends on what strategy you're using as well anyway. I'm thinking particularly about you know bog-standard investment properties where you buy a property and let it out. But, for example, there's an argument maybe for serviced accommodation, you'd use an LLP. Now, that's not my speciality. I'm not saying that is the right way. I'm just saying that there are arguments for some people maybe to structure it that way. You need to do your own research as to what's right for you. But probably if you're doing single lets, if you're doing HMOs, for example, probably for 95% of us, the best way is to structure our affairs so that we're buying our properties into a limited company. Now, this is obviously quite a big change from how things used to be, and it has brought a whole host of questions and potential problems with it, which we'll think about as we go through this podcast. But let me just sort of take us back a step, because before all this happened, before Section 24, in the good old days, things were probably much more clear-cut. The the received wisdom in the old days was that if you were buying properties, say, like single-let buy-to-lets, which you're going to buy and hold and rent out and keep, then you'd probably want to do that in your own name. Why? Because if you were then going to sell the property, you'd be able to take advantage of capital gains tax allowance. Of course, that has now all changed because that's not the most tax efficient way to hold your properties. What hasn't changed, though, is that back in the day, the received wisdom was that if you were going to do flips, in other words, if you're going to buy properties to sell on, and that could be buying properties cheaply and then selling them on at a profit, or buying properties to refurb and then sell on at a profit, or if you're a really, really good wheeler dealer, maybe buying properties to refurb and buying them cheaply and then selling them on at a profit, so you get a double whammy, a double effect, even more profit, then the received wisdom used to be that you should probably be doing that through a limited company. Now, why was that? Well, this is something which I think confused a lot of people. So let me just take this a little bit slowly, take a deep breath and try and explain this as clearly as I can. The reasoning behind this is that the way that we see property and the way that HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, see property doesn't necessarily always result in using the same kind of language. I think that's the best way of describing it. Actually, I said I was going to describe it very clearly. That's probably really confusing. So let me let me try again. The reason why doing flips through a limited company was the best way to do a flip is because the way that HMRC would see a flip is they would see it as trading, which it clearly is. You're buying a property to sell it on. That's trading. And if it's trading then the tax they want to charge is income tax. Now, for some people, that was a little bit confusing because they were thinking, well, hang on a sec, I'm buying a property and I'm increasing the capital value of that property by either buying it cheaply and then selling it on or by 
doing a refurb and adding value to it. So if I'm increasing the capital value, then surely it's capital gains tax I'll be paying. And so then surely I can take advantage of my capital gains tax allowance. But HMRC did not see it that way. HMRC would see it that because you're trading, regardless of what you're doing to the capital value, you're creating an income and they want to charge income tax on it. Your trading profits are effectively income to you. Now, there is a proviso to this. If you'd genuinely bought the property as an investment and you'd rented it out for, I don't know, you'd have to talk to your accountant, but probably, you know, a year or two years and you would genuinely bought it as an investment and you genuinely, at the point of buying it, intended to hold it for a prolonged period and then you sold it, then that's a different matter. Because then HMRC would say, yep, that's fine. You clearly bought it as an investment. You've held it as an investment. You can then use your capital gains tax allowance or charge you capital gains tax. But you can see it's a different animal. It's not the same as buying property for trading. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, how many properties can I trade before HMRC start charging me income tax? Well, again, it's an all depends answer. You have to talk to your accountant about this, but it's not really about the number of properties. It's more about your intention. So if HMRC twigged that you actually were starting your business to trade and flip properties, then they'd probably want to charge you income tax right from the very start. Because the intention is there to be trading. It's not about the number of properties like you can get away with one or two. From the very beginning, when you first went into business, you were going to trade and that was your intention. Therefore, they'll be looking at you as a trader and therefore they'll want to charge you income tax. So that is why back in the day, the advice was usually, if you're flipping, do it through a limited company. Why? Because if you're doing it through a limited company, rates of corporation tax are lower than rates of income tax. And so Therefore, there was a tax benefit to do any trading and flipping through a limited company. Has that changed since Section 24? Well, no, not at all. You need to talk to your accountant, and I'm going to keep saying this, because your situation is going to be unique to you, and so therefore you need to make sure that this generic advice still applies to you. But again, for probably for 95% or more of us who are doing flips and trades, doing it through a limited company is still the way to do it. So that's the situation if you're flipping. But what if you weren't flipping? What if you were genuinely buying properties to hold and to rent out as investments? Well, as I've already said, under those circumstances, you would be able to, if you needed to in the future, sell your properties and you'd be able to benefit from your capital gains tax allowance because you'd be charged capital gains tax. And of course, because of the way capital gains tax operates, if you bought the property with a partner, whether that be a JV partner or a life partner, your spouse, a significant other, your best friend, whoever, then you'd be able to benefit from using both of your capital gains tax allowances. So that was pretty cool as well. Now, the big dilemma for a lot of investors, though, now going forward is Section 24, we can't offset mortgage interest. What are we going to do? Well, as I say, the received wisdom is now buy your properties into a limited company. And if you buy into a limited company, you're going to be charged corporation tax. Capital gains tax is no longer relevant. Capital gains tax only applies to properties which are purchased in your name. Likewise, this whole thing around mortgage interest and 
I keep saying mortgage interest, but it's any business loan. That only affects you if you're buying properties in your own name. But what about those who already have properties in their own name? Well, going forward, probably you need to talk to your accountant and check this is right for you. But probably going forward, if you're going to be buying properties which are, let's say, classic investment properties, you probably want to still be doing that into a limited company. What will you do with the properties you already own, though? Big dilemma. And I know that there's so many different views on this, and I, and I can't give a view. If you're hoping, oh, great, this is going to be the definitive answer. The sad reality is there is no definitive answer. You need to talk to your accountant about what's best for you. But I know that some people are transferring properties from their own name into limited companies. Now, the risk of doing that is that as you transfer from your name to a limited company, because you and your limited company are deemed by HMRC to be separate entities, there's a deemed sale. Now, you may not be selling the properties. They may not be cash-changing hands. There probably isn't. It doesn't matter. As far as HMRC are concerned, there is a deemed sale. And so if there's a deemed sale, that means that it's a taxable event, which means that maybe, depending upon how much you've paid for the property and how much it's now worth, by the way, if there's no cash-changing hands and there's no sale price as such, HMRC will be looking at today's value, and that will be the deemed sale price. So if the property has gone up in value, that's why you could have a capital gains tax bill if you transfer your property into a limited company. Likewise, there could be a stamp duty implication. You may have to pay stamp duty, or the, at least the limited company which you are transferring into may have to pay stamp duty. All of this needs to be taken into account. Now, there are ways and means possibly of structuring your affairs so that you don't have to pay capital gains tax or stamp duty. There's different allowances, and depending upon how it's, the business has been structured in the past, you need to talk to an accountant about that. But it's not necessarily all bad news. But I know that some investors are just saying, well, you do know what? I'm just going to leave things as they are. I've already referred to Anne co-trainer on Masterclass. I don't think she'd mind me saying this because I know she sort of mentions this and uses this as an answer to questions which come up about tax. But she has a, a large portfolio and for her she's decided that it would just be totally uncost effective in-cost effective, is that the word? Inefficient financially is perhaps a better way of putting it, to transfer her properties from her name into a limited company. So she's just going to live with the consequences. So let's assume that you start buying properties or you continue to buy properties and you're going to buy all future properties into a limited company. What are the tax consequences of that? Well, again, in very general terms, you'll be paying corporation tax. And one of the big advantages of paying corporation tax over income tax is that corporation tax is charged at much lower rates. At the moment, corporation tax is currently at 19% and the government have said that they want to take this figure down to 17% by 2020. Now, will that happen? I don't know, because that's this government. If another government were to take over, and let's face it, depending upon what happens with Brexit and all this kind of stuff, this government which we currently have could fall. There could be an, another election. There could be a new government. It could be a different party. And if it's a different party who are most likely to take over, they've said they actually want to put corporation tax up. So it won't go down to 17%. But as things stand at the moment, there's a chance that by 2020, corporation tax is going to be as low as 17%. So on the face of it, that's very attractive, because 
you're going to be paying much less corporation tax than you would be potentially paying in income tax, particularly if you're a higher rate taxpayer. Plus, of course, you can still offset your mortgage interest against the rent when calculating corporation tax, which you can't do if the properties are in your own name. But here's the bad news, and there's two bits of bad news. One's not a terribly bad bit of news, but it's a little bit annoying, and that is that there is no equivalent in corporation tax to your capital gains tax allowance. So your capital gains tax allowance in this tax year, I think, is £11,700. So if you owned a property in your own name, and if it qualified to be taxed under capital gains tax when you sold it, you get £11,700 tax-free. The bad news is there isn't the equivalent in limited company. Now, there used to be what was called indexation relief, which basically allowed you to inflate the value or price of the property from the date when you bought it up until the date when you sold it, accounting for inflation, so that that would reduce your gain by the amount of inflation over the period of time that you'd held the property. But from January this year, that has now disappeared. So there's no indexation relief going forward for any new properties you buy. Any properties which you bought before January in a limited company would still benefit from indexation relief, but that's going. But the big problem which concerns a lot of people around buying into a limited company is how you actually get your money out of a limited company. Because if the money is in the limited company and you want to give that money to yourself, then that in itself is going to be a taxable event. So your company is going to pay corporation tax on any profits it makes, and you are then going to pay income tax on any money that you take out of the company. That is something which a lot of people, I think, don't appreciate. Now, again, that sounds like really, really bad news, but it's not all bad news, and let me explain why. First of all, when you take your money out of the limited company, and I think I'm right in saying this, I'm not an accountant, but I think I'm right in saying this, when you take your money out of the limited company, for example, as an income, which you can do, P-A-Y-E, pay yourself an income, that cost to the business can be offset against the corporation tax when you're calculating corporation tax for the business. So in other words, if you pay yourself, for argument's sake, I don't know, £50,000 or £100,000 a year out of your limited company, if it can afford it, then that cost to the company, that £100,000 or £50,000, can be offset against the profits of the company. So we talk about double taxation, but it's not really double taxation. There's, there's an overlap, but it's not double taxation because some of it can be offset. But of course, there's other ways that you can take money out of your limited company. You can take a dividend. Now, a lot of people have tried to do this, and it's on the face of it a nice idea. But there's a couple of problems with this as well. Firstly, we used to be able to take £5,000 as a dividend tax-free. Now that's gone down to £2,000. So there's not a lot there anyway. But you can only take a dividend from a company that's making a profit. Yeah, okay, well, aren't we in this business to make a profit? Well, yes, we are. But don't confuse profit with cash flow with spendable money. Because when you start in property, when you start buying properties, when you start refurbing your property, when you take into account the costs of education, when you take into account the costs of running your business, there are so many legitimate costs that you can offset that it could quite easily be that you, for the first few years in business, you have cash flow, 
but you're actually running your business at a loss. Now, that might sound crazy, and I can't really go into the details of it now because this is a podcast. I'm waving my arms around like that's going to help you to understand, but of course you can't see me. But if you talk to your accountant about it, they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's right, I understand that. So it's not a crazy idea. You could have a very viable business, but it just so happens that for the first few years, because of all the costs which are up front, you still get cash flow, but you don't have to pay tax. If that's the case, then you can't pay yourself a dividend anyway. So the third way that you can get money out of your business is to give yourself a loan. So the company could literally lend you money. And that's fine, by the way. That's absolutely fine. You can do that. But it has to be a proper legitimate loan. So you'd probably want to produce a loan agreement. I wouldn't suggest that you're necessarily going to go off to a solicitor and pay them £1,000 to come up with a 60-page loan document. You could do it yourself. But the key thing is that it has to be a legitimate loan in the sense that you really have to be able to show that you intend to pay it back and you have to pay a commercial rate of interest. If you do that, then you would qualify. Now, the thing about taking a loan out of the business, though, is that at some point you do have to pay it back. So you need to be thinking about that, how you structure things. So for most of us, if we're going to be taking money out of our limited company, we're probably going to be doing it as some kind of a salary, maybe under some kind of a PAYE scheme. And that's all well and good and that's fine. But you just be aware that you will be paying income tax on that. If you're paying income tax on the money that you take out of your company, is it still worth putting your properties into the company? Well, you need to sit down and run the figures, but probably for 95% of us, yes. Why? Just as a quick recap, because corporation tax is so much lower than income tax anyway, that the profits are going to be taxed at a much lower rate than if you had the properties in your own name. And, of course... You can offset the mortgage interest, which is going to make a massive difference over a period of time. And over a 10-year period, 20-year period, 50-year period, if that ability to offset the mortgage interest isn't taken away from a limited company, over time that is going to make a massive difference. So it's not all doom and gloom. So assuming that you're convinced that probably for you, and your accountant confirms this because you're going to go away and talk to your accountant and not just rely upon Peter and the podcast talking from a position of complete ignorance. But if you're convinced by now that buying into a limited company is the right way forward, let's just think about some of the implications of that and some of the common questions that come up about buying into a limited company. First of all, how do you set up a limited company? Is it hard? Well, no, it's actually very easy. I've not done this myself, but I'm told you can go online and you can pay 15 or 20 quid and you can set up your own limited company. Because I'm a little bit lazy and I don't really want to do that, the last time I set up a limited company, which was about four months ago, I just emailed my accountant and my accountant set it up for me. Cost 150 quid. No big deal. It's not hard. So the second question which comes up is usually all around SIC codes and why do we need a SIC code? Well, a SIC code is the code which tells everybody what the purpose of the business is and what trade it's going to be in. And you need to think about a SIC code when you're reporting to company's house and when you're making uh, an application to a bank for a loan. So we'll come put that bit on hold. Let's just think about the SIC codes. So SIC code tells everybody what you're doing. And in property, there's four main SIC codes. Let me just tell you what they are. SIC code number one you need to know about is 68100 which is for the buying and selling of your own real estate. So if you're going to be flipping and trading, 68100 is probably for you. If you're going to buy properties and buy and hold them and keep them, 
but there's a possibility that you might want to sell them later. You'd probably have to want to have that SIC code 68100. And by the way, before I go any further, let me just clear up a point of confusion, which I think a lot of people sort of get themselves in a little bit het up about. You can have more than one SIC code for your limited company. You can have up to four SIC codes. Now, it doesn't necessarily follow that you should have more than four SIC codes. I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow that you should be undertaking multiple activities. But just to be on the safe side, if I was setting up a limited company now, I'd probably go for two SIC codes, 68100 and 68209, which is for the letting and operating of owned or leased real estate. In other words, if you're going to buy and hold property and rent it out, you want SIC code 68209, but I'd have 68100 in there as well, just in case you ever want to sell. And that's probably enough for most of us. Now, what you would probably do, though, in reality, is you would probably set up a separate limited company if you were going to have different activities. So, for example, if you're going to flip properties, you probably want to set up a separate company to the company that's going to hold your buy-to-lets. They're two separate activities. Now, in the old days, it probably didn't make much difference. And in fact, when I started 20 years ago, I did everything through one limited company. I'm actually still doing everything through one limited company because that's just easier. But it's probably not the most tax efficient way to do it. If I was starting again now, I'd separate the activities out. And you might want to think about doing that as well. Two other SIC codes which you might want to think about. 68320. That's for management of real estate on a fee or contract basis. So if you set up your own management company to manage your own properties or to manage other people's properties, you'd be using 68320. And then there's 68310, which is for any real estate agencies. So if you're going to do deal packaging or sourcing, technically you should probably be doing that under SIC code 68310, and you'd probably be well advised to have your own separate limited company doing that and not mixing it with your buy-to-let limited company. So the SIC code tells companies house what activity and trade you're going to be engaged in. It also tells your lender what activity and trade you're going to be engaged in if you go and apply for a loan. So your lender is going to be looking at that. So let's just think about lenders. Now, assuming that it's all been set up properly as it should be, then that shouldn't be a problem to your lender anyway. I mean, your lender has, is, does this is what they do. I think for a lot of newbie investors, they worry about stuff which they don't need to worry about because they don't realise or don't appreciate that property investing isn't something we've just suddenly dreamed up and we started it a few weeks ago. It's been going since, I don't know, since almost prehistory, isn't it? Hasn't somebody always owned something and rented it out to somebody else? Absolutely. And so the banks know what they're doing. So when you turn up with a SIC code, the bank aren't going to say, what's that? Oh, I better just check that. I'm not sure. I mean, because they know this stuff. As long as it's all being set up properly, it's not a problem. But what, what they will be looking at, though, is whether they should be lending money to your limited company. Now, this is something which, again, some investors tend to get a little bit confused and worried about. Because what they'll say is, Peter, I haven't been trading. So my limited company hasn't got any money. Uh, it hasn't got a track record. My limited company can't show three years accounts because my accountant only set it up last week or I set it up on the internet last night, whatever. So how do we actually get around this? Well, again, take a deep breath and relax because it's all covered. Your lender understands this. Your lender understands what you're trying to do. 
So rather than looking at the limited company, which has had no activity, had no money, no income, has got no accounts, what they'll do is they'll look at you and they'll see whether they want to lend to you. If they like the look of you and if you match their criteria and their criteria could be having a minimum income, although not every lender requires a minimum income, by the way, or it could be they require you to own your own house before they lend to you on a buy-to-let property. They will look at you. They will look at your last three years accounts. If you're self-employed, they'll look at your equivalent of the SA302s to see what your tax position was, to see what you've been earning over the last few years. That's what they'll look at. And if they like the look of you, then they will lend the money to your limited company. So that's not anything to worry about. Another question which will come up is, Peter, I've already got a limited company. I'm an IT consultant and I set up a limited company and I want to use that to buy properties. Is that okay? Generally speaking, no, it's not okay because the bank will want you to set up a bespoke limited company for your property activities. Now, again, if you're going to do more than one different type of property activity, you might still be setting up two or three different limited companies, one for each activity. But that's what the bank expects and that's what the bank requires. Why is that? Because basically, ultimately, and you might think this is a cynical view, but I'm absolutely sure it's true. Ultimately, all a bank is ever concerned about is if everything goes horribly wrong and they have to repossess the property, how easy is it going to be for them to sell it? And if you buy properties into your limited company, which you've been using for your IT business, it's all a bit messy. They want to make sure that everything is clean, it's transparent, that they can move in and do what they need to do without having to worry about whether you've got IT clients or IT debtors or whatever. It's just too messy. So that's why they want to keep the whole thing separated out. That's why we call the limited company that you're going to be setting up an SPV. And in episode 77, I went to great pains to try and explain that an SPV is not a name of a type of entity like limited company, partnership, LLP, SPV. No, no, no. The SPV is the type of entity that you choose to use for a particular purpose. So in this particular instance, the special purpose vehicle just happens to be a limited company, if that makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, listen to episode 77. I went into it all then. But that's what it's all about. The bank just want to make sure that you're doing all of this properly. By the way, just going back to SIT codes, one thing I should say is that the SIT code thing actually only becomes something you need to ratify, if that's the right word, when you do your first set of accounts and send your first set of accounts into company's house. So you know what the SIT codes are anyway, so it's not a big deal. You know what you're doing, you know what the right SIT code is, but you don't actually have to tell company's house until you do your first set of accounts. But your bank will want to know the basis on which you're trading. And then the very last question, which I often get is, but if I buy properties into my limited company, will I actually get lending? Are there lenders out there who will lend to a limited company? Can I get buy-to-let lending on a lim- for a limited company? Well, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And things are changing all the time in the lending market. And I've been buying into a limited company for getting on for 20 years, and I've never had a problem. There's always been at least a dozen lenders who would lend to a limited company, and that hasn't changed. In fact, it is getting better because so many buy-to-let investors are now buying into a limited company. Many lenders are now switching on to the idea that they've got to provide bespoke products for limited companies, and that is happening. 
back in November 2017, the Mortgage Works started to trial lending to limited companies. Now, it's not widespread. They're, they're only using selected brokers just to try this out. I don't know why they're trying it out, by the way, because back in the day, they always used to lend to limited companies. Then they stopped lending to limited companies. Now they're trialling lending to limited companies again. The point is, though, that the mortgage works are one of the biggest buy-to-let lenders in the country. And if they decide they're going to switch it on, then they're going to just have limited uh, company products, then you can be sure that everybody else is going to follow suit. Birmingham Midshires, who are probably the biggest buy-to-let lender in the country at the moment, aren't at the moment lending to limited companies. Hopefully they will. If the mortgage works do, then probably Birmingham Midshires will or will do more quickly. But it's just the way things are going, that it's just the way ahead. And there are so many other lenders who lend to limited companies anyway, that you're not going to have much of a problem. Now, the other objection is, but Peter, aren't the mortgages to limited companies more expensive than to if I was buying, you know, in my own name? Well, possibly, but we're not talking about, you know, 10% more. We're talking about maybe quarter of a percent or half a percent. It's not that big a deal. The thing is, it's not just about the headline rate, is it? It's about what the effect of offsetting all of your mortgage interest over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years is going to make difference, isn't it? That's got to be more important than the extra quarter of a percent or half a percent that you're going to pay on your mortgage for the next few years. So we've got to keep a sort of sense of perspective and look at the bigger picture on this. So that's limited companies. Just want to say a very quick thing about trust funds, because sometimes I'm asked, well, Peter, wouldn't it be better just to hold everything in a trust fund? I've never done it. I don't really know how it works. But these are my thoughts from a position of complete ignorance on trust funds. First of all, it's got to be set up in the right sort of way, hasn't it? So is it the property that's going to go into the trust fund? Or are you going to set up a limited company and then hold the shares of the limited company in a trust fund? That might be an easier way of doing it. Talk to your accountant. The one thing I would say, though, is whatever I am doing in property, whenever I'm thinking about this, I'm not just thinking about the tax consequences, but I'm always thinking about how can I grow my business. And if I was to put all of my properties into a trust fund, the question I'd be asking myself is, would I still be able to borrow money? If I go to a typical buy-to-let lender and say, look, I've got these properties in a trust fund, I want to borrow against them, or I want to buy properties to put into a trust fund, will you lend me the money to buy the property? What's a typical buy-to-let lender going to say? And I suspect that their response to that is going to be rather negative. Now, would it be the same position if you bought properties in a limited company, but put the shares of the limited company into a trust fund? Probably that would be easier. Probably. I've not done it, so I can't say for absolute sure, but I would think it would be a better way of doing it. Talk to your accountant about that. Final thing I want to talk about is death. Ah, sorry. Yes, make you splutter on your cornflakes. But yeah, we, we're all going to get there, aren't we? It's going to happen to all of us. What happens then? Well, what happens then is that when you die, the tax which is going to affect your estate is inheritance tax. And we need to be thinking about how we structure ourselves for that. Now, if you were to come on the masterclass, the four-day event at Progressive, on the Friday and the Sunday evenings, we go out for dinner. And one of the questions I'm regularly asked over dinner, or if it's not a question, it's a statement somebody makes, it will be something along the lines of, Peter, I'm going to try and pay down all of my mortgages so I can leave all of my properties to my children unencumbered so that they inherit loads of money. That's the short version. But that's pretty much what they're saying. 
Or the question would be, would it be a good idea to pay down all my mortgages so I can leave everything to my children unencumbered? The thing we need to be thinking about here, though, is what is the actual effect? It sounds very virtuous, doesn't it? Pay everything down, get rid of our mortgages. And I hear this so often in property, but actually, what is it we're trying to achieve? Because if you did pay down all of the debt on your properties and you got rid of all of your mortgages, what would the consequence of that be when you die, which you inevitably will? Well, the consequence of that will be that your estate will be enormously valuable, which means that you're going to pay a hell of a lot of inheritance tax on that. Now, I know that we've got inheritance tax allowances. At the moment, for an individual, is it £325,000, £650,000 for a couple? And then there's the credit towards your home, which could take it up to a million quid. I appreciate all that's there. But you need to be thinking about the figures and what it is you're actually going to be leaving to your children if you try and leave all your properties unencumbered. Because, you know, even if you can use all of that million quid as and when that's available, if it ever becomes available, does that actually benefit your, your, your children, your estate, whoever's going to inherit, whoever you're going to leave behind? Because if you own a house in London, regardless of how much your house is worth now, in 20 years' time, 30 years' time, 40 years' time, is it going to be worth more than a million quid? Well, probably is, isn't it? I mean, the way things are going. And although you may say, well, surely they'll just raise the thresholds, Peter, wouldn't count on it. Governments tend not to do that. A good way of increasing taxes is actually not to increase the tax, but just to leave the threshold. So you don't know what's going to happen, but the chances are that you might be thinking it's a virtuous thing to do, but it's actually not as virtuous as you're hoping it's going to be. Which is why there is an argument that as you go through your property journey, that you regularly refinance your properties and take money out. Now that money, if it's in your own name, that's easy because you can just take the money out and go and spend it. And by the way, I'm not talking about doing anything reckless. And I would only do this when I was in a position where I could see that the portfolio was sound enough and stable enough to be able to do this. But when it gets to that point, when the equity grows in your properties, it may be worth just using that as income because then you can spend it. And if it's in your own name, then you can get that money tax free. How do you get it tax free? Well, you just take it out as a loan. Now, it's a bit more complicated if you've got your properties in a limited company, which going forward, 95% of us are going to be doing. But I guess the answer is you just pay yourself a higher salary and you pay a bit more tax now. But the point is that by doing that, you're reducing the equity within your overall portfolio so that when you do snuff it, which you will, then you'll be reducing and mitigating your inheritance tax bill. Now, again, it's a fairly complex subject, which I'm making light of and going over very quickly. But you want to sit down with your accountant on a reasonably regular basis as you begin to acquire your properties and just think about what the inheritance tax consequences could be if you got hit by a bus tomorrow or if you last until you're 85 or 90. Probably going to have different answers, aren't you? Well, you're definitely going to have different answers about the consequences and just start planning ahead for that. And virtuous as it may be or may sound paying down your mortgages and having your properties unencumbered may not be such a good idea you may just be producing a massive great tax bill further down the line so there we are there's just some of my sort of random ramblings on tax i hope you found it interesting maybe even provocative and thought-provoking as i say I'm not pretending to be an expert, but it's just one of those things which I've had to think about. I'm sure that from time to time you're thinking about it, and I hope that you will have found that useful. So 
If you want to know more about me, please do come and visit me at my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk. There's a whole host of resources there, some paid for, but there are some freebies which you're welcome to. Come and sign up for my newsletter. If you like the kind of stuff I'm talking about, you may want to hear from me more often. Then every Friday morning I send out my newsletter at about 9.30. Come over to my website, sign up for my newsletter. It'd be great to be able to keep in touch with you. Otherwise, until the next podcast, here's to successful property investing.